Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And so, Dominique, I almost feel guilty saying that it's a beautiful, beautiful fall day because, of course, out in California, it's just horrific. The fires are burning, and I can't imagine. I can't imagine how hard that must be for people, and particularly when you have animals and you have to evacuate. I know. Um, it's just just heartbreaking what people must be going through. And, and Oregon, too. Or the whole West Coast and the air quality. So even if you don't have to evacuate, yeah. we can at least go into our houses and sort of close things up but the horses have to stay outside and and of course all the wild animals have to stay outside and it's just just heartbreaking but here it's beautiful and the weather is we're having picture perfect fall weather it's just glorious and it's good training weather the horses are are comfortable the flies aren't so bad so it's a nice it's a nice time of the year for the horses and I suppose one of the things that the fires out west brings to mind sort of just reviewing some of the things we've already covered and we don't need to cover it in any depth but it brings home all the more the importance of doing work in advance like you did the trailer training Mm. on your horses so if something were to come up, I think you would feel fairly confident that your horses would would go on a trailer and go on a trailer yeah, quickly. But, you know, actually, I was thinking about that because really we should refresh, you know, once in a while, make sure that we're maintaining uh, the behaviors because I wouldn't take anything for granted. Um, so, yeah, we should always be prepared for husbandry, trailering. I know I don't like to think about all the horrible things that could happen. Well, let me let me prepare my horse for this horrible leg wound that could happen because horses have terrible leg wounds, but I don't want to think about my horse having a terrible leg wound, so maybe I'll just put blinders on and not not prepare for that. I know. But, but some, um, you know, and sometimes we're kind of, we, I don't know if that happens to you, but I know for myself, sometimes I think, okay, what am I going to train today? Um, so when you have those days where you're not so, you're, you're not quite sure what to train, those are good behaviors to focus on. Yes. Yes. And all the sort of the core basics of husbandry and the body part targeting and so on. We're, I'm just back from uh, not back from because I didn't have to travel. We had our virtual science camp, which was just phenomenal. Last December, when we announced science camp, I was so looking forward to sharing the barn with people, and I was, you know, planning for it. And then, of course, the coronavirus hit, and all the travel, all the clinics had to shift to virtual platforms. And the first, first virtual clinic was, wow, this actually works. And not only does it work, but it's really fun. And not only is it really fun, but it's a great way to learn. And I'm hearing comments about from people saying, well, you know, we really enjoy the clinics, but 
we we learn so much from these virtual clinics and which is is really neat because I you know when you listen to news reports and so on from people going oh you know all the virtual teaching that the children are having to do and it's no good and it's no it's like well I don't know what they're being exposed to but the virtual clinics are phenomenal so anyway we had the the virtual science camp and the reason why I'm mentioning it is one of the participants works at a zoo and just phenomenal person, really, really neat. He asked great, great questions. And some of the video he shared, some of the stories he shared, you know, I just went, when... Give us a little peek. <laughs> well, he's, he's actually, it's very cool. So he, his background was in working with the big predators and then he worked with marine the marine mammals my impression is that there's a real hierarchy in the zoos you know that that um in the humans you mean or the animals yeah in the in the humans okay. in terms of of how the trainers are regarded so oh. you know if working with the elephants wow that's right you know that's at the pinnacle working okay, with okay. the you know the the big cats and yeah. you know the you know in the same way that we regard that we regard some of these animals as, you know, these are the the, the poster animals for all of the um, Save the Wildlife campaigns. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't put some tiny little indescript, I don't know, salamander on on the envelope. You put polar bears and dolphins and that sort of thing. So that's those are the animals that he was working with. And then he switched by choice, to working with the animals in the children's zoo. Okay. So he's, and he oversees a lot of the animal care in the children's zoo. So he's working with mini horses and goats and a little uh, miniature steer and the llamas and the alpacas and, you know, the animals that we are familiar with. Mm. And... He sees such value in working with them and being an ambassador and a link out to the general public. And one of the things that in the zoo that he's working for that's really important is that the animals that, is, that are ambassadors that are meeting the public, that they have choice. Mm -hmm. So if they don't want to participate, they don't have to. And they actually get reinforced for saying no. Okay. So they, they, it's not simply, well, if you don't come out and let the children maul you, you won't get any goodies. Right. It's, you know, if you go over to this platform, that's basically the no platform. You'll get reinforced for that. Hmm. You get to say, you know, you, you have a say in this. And if you, if you want to interact with the children, then you can go over to this platform and they're designing everything so that all of their husbandry has that choice option. You can interact or not is very much built into the, the training design and, the, and how they're thinking about structuring all the interactions with the um, general public. And I just think that's phenomenal because this is 
you know, this is in part how zoos make their money by having children and birthday parties and so on being able to come in and interact with the animals. And so to give the, the people who have the care of these animals, to give them a voice, yeah. to be able to stand up for and advocate for their animals is huge. You know, and to be able to say, you know, on behalf of this animal, this is not in his best interest and to be listened to, huge. It is. And, you know, um, what I like about that is that it's all the nuances that it brings in. Because when you look at old style petting zoo, you feel like these things should not exist, period. But then when you start looking at this kind of work, you see all the nuances that you can include that will make a huge difference and will allow these things to continue because we kind of like those things. It's just that we want them to be, you know, um, animal friendly, not just fun for the children. So it's great because, you know, there's a future for these things. But it's, and it's, there's an even, I think, an even bigger ripple effect, which is a ripple effect back to all the people who are going to be visiting that petting zoo. Not all of them have animals. And, and some of them have, may have cats or dogs at home, but some of them will have horses and other hoofed animals in their lives, but they may not yet see the the rich emotional life that these animals have and their sentience. They may not see the intelligence of their animals that they live with because culturally they've been taught to, to think of them in other ways. Absolutely. And so when you go to when you go to a petting zoo and you see that the animals are involved in voluntary blood draws. You know, it's not three men and a boy holding them down. Yeah. It's voluntary foot and they, care. And they explain it. Yeah. Because that, that's self, important. Self, that's right. Self-haltering. Uh, all of these things that, you know, in a sense, we're within the clicker training community. We, I don't want to say we take for granted because we're not quite there yet, but we're beginning to take as normal mm-hmm. things like self-haltering. So you begin to take that as normal. You begin to take, you know, that that if my animal hangs back in his pen, his paddock, his stall, whatever the, you know, his, whatever, wherever he's uh, living, that, you know, I, I, I will say, oh, okay, you, you don't want to play right now. That's fine. But in the broader horse world, these things are, these things can be quite mind-blowing. And so it's an opportunity for that message to get sent back into the horse community. So it's it was very exciting. It was really neat to see that. And it's such a good reminder. It is. You know, a friend of mine bought some chicken this year. And, of course, I wanted to train the chickens. <laughs> of course. Um, which for him was, like, weird, you know. It was like, you can't train chicken. They're not smart enough. <laughs> 
So I showed him, you know that video from Skinner of the pigeon that is in a box? There's a banana hanging from the ceiling and there's a little Oh, cube. the Robert Epstein. Yes. Yeah. And yes. so within what? And so the just for people who have not seen this uh, video, the pigeon wants to access uh, the banana, but it's too high for him or her. Um, and so, but then there's that little cube in the corner and within... I think it's probably two minutes. It's less than a, no, it's less than a minute. It's, I think. Yeah, it's very yeah. short. Anyway, I it's mean, very you, short. You 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 see the pigeon looking at the banana, thinking, trying to solve the problem, and sure enough, you know, it takes him no time to push the little cube uh, under the bananas, jump on the cube, and he can finally access the banana. So for this friend, it was like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was amazed to see. And actually, um, the reason why I showed this to him is because the chickens were quite good at escaping their little pen. And, you know, they wanted to go for a walk, which I think is very normal. Um, and there was a tree next by and sometimes they wanted to sleep in the tree. But that was too dangerous. They had to go uh, inside so that the raccoons would not eat them. But you could see them thinking, because he, he kind of arranged things so they wouldn't go in the tree. But it took them a week to solve the problem, and they found other ways. <laughs> um, so anyway. It's interesting that you mentioned that video, because that was one of the examples that Mary Hunter was giving during the science camp in the errorless learning, because the reason that the that those pigeons were able to solve that puzzle was because they had prior experience with key components. So if they had, they the pigeons that were successful had had prior experience jumping up on the box mm -hmm. and they had had prior experience not just pushing a box but pushing it to a uh, particular point so they had learned to push directionally okay and and so when those key components were in their training they, they could put those together to yeah. solve the the what was a novel problem but when they lacked any of those components and it was really interesting she showed us uh some graphs of the data of pigeons that had not had the all all of those components put together and it just looks like somebody's taken a pencil and scribbled all over a circle you know and just scribbled randomly and kind of all but blotted it in because the pigeons were sort of all over the the uh, their little enclosure, but never solved the puzzle, mm. and 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 yet the pigeons that did solve the puzzle, there were three three graphs that she showed us, and one the pigeon pushed the the block over to the side and then up. One pigeon pushed it almost directly under the banana, and one took another slight little detour. But I think all of them solved it in. Well, it was certainly under two minutes. Mm. It was really, really interesting mm. to see the to see that data. So, you know, part of the key to really good training is to put in the the repertoire. So, you know, you may not think about well, you know, what are if what are all the things that could happen to my horse? All right, so I'm going to train for this disaster and that disaster and this other disaster, and then 
the one disaster that you don't mm-hmm. think of will be the one that, that you get. Well, you can't really train that way, but you can train the underlying components. Does my horse stand on a mat? Well, that's a good, you know, for most doctoring things, that's a great one to start with. Yes, my horse will, will go to a mat, he'll stand on a mat, he'll stay on the mat without my having to do a lot of uh, management, which frees me up then to do other things. So that would be a key component. Will my horse, does he do body part targeting? You know, will he bring uh, the side of his face to my hand? Will he bring his ear to my hand? Well, an understanding of body part targeting gives you access to a lot of doctoring sorts of things. You know, if he'll body part target, then maybe I can get eye drops in, or maybe I can uh, hot pack a wound on the side of his face or, you know, whatever it is. Um, Can I run my hand all over his body? Can I walk behind him? Will he ground tie? So if I need to bandage a hind leg, can I easily bandage a hind leg because he's standing happily ground tied, that kind of thing. Will he put, will he put his feet in a bucket without water first or even in, um, what do you call it? The 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 thing we feed, the feet tub to start with. So yep, that if yep. you ever have to do um, foot uh, soak of soak, any sort, yeah, yeah, soak yep. the feet. So you start way. looking at what are some key components. Like I've been looking for for some of the land management um, and how 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 do we manage our land better? One of the people whose work I've been looking at is um, Dr. Doug Ptolemy, and he's a he's an entomologist, and his his most recent book is Nature's Best Hope, and he he talks about homegrown national parks, which I just love, and his his premise is that we need biodiversity, that that insect populations are collapsing, and if insect populations collapse, if the pollinators disappear, we're we're gone. You know, we're just gone. You know, we we don't have the vast areas of wilderness that we had a hundred years ago, but we still have a lot of land, and it's under private control. You know, I'm looking out over my backyard. I think about the acres around the barn, and and those are areas that I have stewardship over. So we we can look at those areas as how can we look at the the ecological function of the plants. Like he's completely changed how I look at goldenrod, which is really interesting. But he talks about keystone species. So they're species that really have an effect on the overall ecological function of a system more much greater than other species. And the oak tree would be sort of at the top of that hierarchy because oak trees support over 500 different species of caterpillars in the north northeast and the caterpillars are really important because that's what birds use to feed their young so the birds like caterpillars because they're easy for their their young bird to digest so if you really want songbirds if you want birds, you need uh, plants that support insects that produce caterpillars. Mm-hmm. And the oak tree produces like over 500 compared to something like the ginkgo, which produces zero mm-hmm. species of caterpillars. So you look for, so if I were going to really 
do something on my property that could make a big effect, I would plant more oak trees. I'm looking out in an oak tree right now, which makes me very pleased that there's one right outside the, right at the base of the garden. Uh, and there are other keystone species like that that you plant. And I was thinking, what a great analogy for the training that we do, that we want keystone behaviors. Mm -hmm. What are keystone behaviors that give you so much more sort of bang for your buck, as it were? Certainly going to a mat, keystone speed, oh, keystone yeah. behavior. Absolutely. Head lowering, I think, is a keystone behavior. So you think about, you know, and actually really all the found what I call the foundation lessons, mm -hmm. they're, they're keystone behaviors. So you, you might not think if, you know, if some people struggle with know, foundation behaviors. I'm not sure why, but it's, they do. So, so we could just change the, the name, name and say, it. these yeah. are, right, these are keystone <laughs> behaviors that give you a huge ripple effects and that are, uh, have a much broader ecological function as, as it were, a uh, training function that we can spread out through the training. And so you think about when you're preparing, like you prepared your, your horses for trailering, would you, what would you, just off the top of your head, what would be some keystone behaviors? Targeting? Yeah, targeting, but even going to a mat because, you know, like for Pico, that's what I used. I used a little platform. Uh, that I put six feet from the trailer because in the beginning he didn't want to be close to the trailer. So, you know, stepping on a mat or stepping on a platform is, uh, you know, it's just more or less the same behavior yep. that yep. you're just, uh, that is just evolving. Right. Um, yeah, certainly targeting was a big part of it. Um, so if we think about all the places where you can use a mat, I mean, what is mat training really about? So well, if you want to help. train anything at a distance, um, you need your horse to stay on a mat. It teaches yep. you can teach duration with yep. a mat. Um, so if you want to send a horse out over a jump, going from mat to mat is a great way to do it. Yeah, scared horse um, will start focusing on mat instead of focusing on the goblins. Yep. If you are riding out, and certainly the mats are part of the training of, you can step on strange surfaces. So, you know, a horse that's a little anxious at first, a little cautious at first of stepping on something that is different from the surrounding substrate. And, and, and if you want to your horse or dog to go on the scale, it's the yes. same as going on a mat. Yep. Or crossing a bridge. Mm. So that would be the start of crossing a bridge or crossing a stream. So, you know, you start thinking about, you know, all the different places where having a horse that knows how to go to a mat is a useful thing. You begin to see, oh, yeah, mats are like oak trees. I'm pretty sure if we did a full map out of everything we want to do with our horses at the base of it would be a limited number of behaviors, probably a lot, but still limited because in the end, you know, you're kind of always going back to the same basis. Well, it's those six foundation lessons because they give you forward and back 
And out of forward and back, you can shape everything that you want. You can shape all the lateral work. So you can shape all the performance work. You can work on uh, the straightening, good balance, all those things that ring my bells and whistles, which is also what mats are about. Mats are about straightness. So uh, forward and back gives you a halt. It gives you go. <laughs> so it gives you go and whoa. And so out of that, you can shape basically everything that you want. And then the targeting uh, gives you the trick training. It opens that door as well as all the husbandry, as well as it's part of performance. So, you know, it starts with such a, uh, it's so cool in that it starts with these really simple core elements that as you explore and perfect, takes you to whatever, you know, whatever you have in terms of, this is what I want to do with my horse. Well, it's any time training is not working out, it's because we're missing a component. Yes. And yes. I remember you said to me once, and I've heard you say this probably a few times, is that we always lump, beginners always lump. Um, yep. it, takes, it takes many, many years to really uh, learn how to slice a behavior into all the little components. And the reality is that you're always a lumper. Always. Always, There's because always... compared compared with where you will be in the future, and the future could be next week, could be next training session, you know, that, that you, you know, our, as we learn more, our eye becomes more fine-tuned, our understanding of uh, how we can break things down into smaller steps, et cetera, et cetera. We see the smaller pieces, we understand the the training process better. So, you know, where you are now is not where you will be tomorrow or next week or next year. And when you look back on your training, you know, a year from now, you'll be thinking, oh, I was such a lumper then. Mm. <laughs> I was such a lumper. You know, I have so much more finesse now. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that was also fun at science camp. So in the morning, we did rope handling, mm -hmm. and Jesus was so cute. You know, after the first uh, morning, he said, oh, it's so much more than what I thought. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. yes. You know, so we didn't actually bring out lead ropes until the last day, but we had just, oh, such great sessions. I invited Anita Schnaef, who's a Feldenkrais practitioner, who's a regular attendee of the Arkansas clinics. And she gave us four just phenomenal, phenomenal Feldenkrais lessons. At the, by the, I mean, the, the first day, I felt just, it was a lovely session and I felt really, really good. By the fourth day, I've never moved the way I was moving. And I, it confirmed for me the value why, why this is, I've always maintained that at some point I'll finish this sentence. I'm just thinking of this in terms of editing, but I've always maintained that the horses enjoy moving well, mm -hmm. that for them, it is reinforcing that when you can, through the training, help a horse to become better balanced. So he moves with greater ease, that that is something they enjoy. 
And when I was, I was so, so enjoying on the last day, we, we took a, we had this training sessions, we did the rope handling, we took a short break, and I just was moving around the house, just reveling in how good it felt and how easy it felt and all these images that beautiful movement and i and so the images that were coming to mind actually were were old ones i live in upstate new york and i live not far from saratoga which um saratoga has a performing arts center and it's it's the summer home of the new york city ballet and that's george balanchine the great russian choreographer that was his company and so while I had the great privilege, thankfully I took advantage of it, when while he was still alive to watch his ballets. And so I got to see Barishnikov and Patricia McBride and Suzanne Farrell and these great, just incredible dancers that Balanchine had trained. And this movement that they have, this, this, that's what I was sort of, that memory, that muscle feel, even though I'm not a dancer, have never taken any dance classes, but that muscle memory is still in you when you've watched great dancers. And that's what I was remembering and feeling and enjoying from those four sessions that we, because it's, the, I think one of the things that an experience like science camp or the, the virtual clinics, it's an immersion. So we're spending, you know, we're spending all day together. And in the case of science camp, we're spending four days. And so there's a, this, the effect, the cumulative effect is, is there. And it was just so neat to feel that and to remember and really acknowledge that part of the reason that I'm so obsessed with good balance for the horses is... I think they love it, that they enjoy it, that they love feeling the real grace of their of their bodies. And particularly when you have a horse that's been locked up in his body and you can start to release that and they can and they they can feel the ease of movement, that that's a wonderful gift that you give them. Mm. And so with the with the rope handling, what we were seeing is Again, all the nuance, this, you yeah. know, this incredible nuance and the details and, you know, that to really appreciate and understand the rope handling, that one of the components, so we are looking at this from an errorless learning process, what are the components that go into good rope handling skills? Jesus says I should give it another name, but I haven't given it another name, so that's what I'm going to call it for now. But what are the components? And one of the components is an understanding within your own being of, you know, of the, the body awareness, some awareness of your own balance and what you bring to the table. And when you feel something, when you, when you can feel uh, tension release and freedom of movement come in, uh, and a range of movement and the ease and grace of movement come in where before it was stiff and tight, that that's all part of understanding the rope handling. 
It was really fun. And we got great feedback from people just, you know, how, how eye-opening that was. Anita, she's, she's a, she's a really phenomenal uh, Feldman Christ practitioner. And she, for the, the science camp, she had, uh, she'd really given it a lot of thought and was seen sort of looking at the Feldenkrais lessons through the lens of the work that uh, she seen me do with the horses. And, and so it changed how she was structuring the lessons. And she said, mm-hmm. I'm never going to go back to teaching the way I used to teach. It's like, oh, how interesting. Because, mm. you know, and which is why we're always growing. That's the fun of it. We're always growing and changing. And, you know, you bring in uh, another from outside your your area of expertise, you bring in another bit of repertoire and it shifts everything. And sometimes it transforms everything. So was there anything that, a little nugget that you can give us in terms of the science, um, anything that uh, you felt was transforming? Well, that is the nugget. Or you, I, I, yeah. I would say that's the nugget is, you know, that, that you know, good training the, is made up of looking components. at the component parts mm-hmm. and, you know, breaking that down into the components, looking at what you need to teach first. And then, because, you know, what, what do you need, what do you need to have in place for the next step to be approachable? And then, uh, so you start looking at the learning hierarchies and that that's, that's the real nugget. And when you are looking at, when I, you know, a lot of the uh, novice trainers, novice horse owners, when they're coming to clinics and they say, you know, I'm, I want to get my horse on the trailer. I'll take that example. You say, okay, okay, we'll work on that. And then what do we work on? We have a horse in a stall and he's learning to touch a target. And they're thinking, but, but, but I wanted to work on trailer loading or I wanted to ride. <laughs> you know, I wanted to do all these, these, you know, I wanted to jump. I wanted whatever it was. And you're in the stall with the horse, teach him to touch a target. And it's that, that, real understanding that you are working on trailer loading, you are working on riding, you're working on jumping, you're working on all of those things. So would you have any any tips for people who they can't see it yet, you know? So you say you need to understand, you know, what do you teach first? How do I know? Where do I get ideas if I'm stuck? You know, I think that between one and two, there's no steps. How do I get inspiration or uh, insights to learn that there is 1.1, 1.2, etc.? Do you have any tips on that? Well, how did you do it? Well, you know, sometimes I, I kind of let my brain work on the problem. I know I don't have the answer, but I, you know, when I'm driving or even sleeping or daydreaming, I think about it. Yeah. And I kind of let my brain work on the problem. Sometimes I'll look at um, how things I are taught traditionally. Yeah. There's some really good, you know, ideas there. It's just yes. Teach it differently but sometimes it'll help me or I'll even listen uh, you know to how a traditional trainer 
describes the process. Yep. And I will delete everything that is not um, in accordance with, you know, what I have learned, but I always get something out of it. It's just sometimes it's hard to watch or hear because I get um, impatient. But um, if I can set that aside, um, there's some really good, you know, I, I do get inspiration like that. What about you? What other ways do you? Well, you start looking at, at you start looking at, well, what can I do? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what can I do? What, how far into the problem can I We'll call it a problem. How far into the behavior that I would like to be able to do with my horse? You know, I'd like to get, I'd like him to load onto the trailer. Well, how far can I go? So I'll go test right the now. waters. Yeah, right now. Yeah, because yeah. if I, if, if my horse and I can go, if I can take my horse out and he walks right on the trailer. Well, I don't have, I don't, yeah, have a problem I don't need to slice it down more. <laughs> I don't need to slice it down. It's all, it's already taken care of. If I can get on my horse and go for a ride and not see my life flashing before my eyes three or four times during that ride well you know maybe I can just go for a ride so I'll go out and test the waters and I'm going to stop at the point where things start to feel a little not quite not quite right so you know you think about back to the beginning of the conversation with uh, with the zoo example of we're going to give the horses a choice so you know, if I start leading my horse up to the back of the trailer and he stalls out 20 feet from the back of the trailer, then at that point I have to look at, well, what do I need? What skills do I need? Do I need? And what skills does my horse need for us to proceed further? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it about trailers and you know, and and is there a more interesting way than just coming out and seeing if I could get him to take a step, you know, closer every day? But are there, you know, maybe it is. I get out my mats and I and I uh, build some platforms and I teach him to go up and over things. Maybe I create squeezes for him so he learns to go between things and under things. You know, what are all the things about trailers? I could imagine might be an unknown for horse that I could explain. And then I'll take him back to the trailer and see how we progress. You know, if I want to put a saddle on my horse because I want to ride, but he dances away whenever I walk towards him with a saddle. Well, you know, what, what is it, what is going on there? So what would be, what would make that job easier? Well, if he stood on a mat, that would be easier. Of course, I could always tie him, but maybe I'd like to do him without having him tied. So can I teach him to stand on a mat? And, you know, is he worried by having me lift something up, you know, up above my shoulders? Well, let me lift lots of things up above my shoulders. Is he worried by uh, having things on his back? Well, let me put things other than a saddle on his back. You know, what are, let me just see what are some of the elements when I think about the saddle, how how could I make it, when I think about the saddle, how could I make it simpler, easier? So you just, you just start listening to your horse. I mean, that's really the key. You start listening to your horse. Where do, where do you see the worry? 
And then you take the time to do something about it. Okay, let me give you another example. Because okay. the worry the worry is, you know, there's part of it is that the horse has had bad experience with something. But I want to make it simpler than that because I find that to be more complex. But let's say I want to train a trick. So okay. there's no... no um, there's no, no prior no background, experience. no right. prior experience. So there's no counter conditioning or anything of the sorts, just getting behavior. Okay. But I'm not getting behavior. I'm not getting the behavior that I want because I'm lumpy. What is the trick that you want to train? Well, let's say, um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> oops. I don't want to take something too, um, Let's say I want to, I want my horse to cross his front paw. Okay. Okay. I want, I want my horse to just take his left uh, leg and put it in front of the right leg. Okay. okay? Yep. So, um, and so I know that I need to, first of all, I, I, I need to be aware of how the horse can, how, which, where does the weight has to be in order for the horse to be able to do the behavior? You see what, you see what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So now I, the horse is, um, is set to do it, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know what the steps are in between. I'm thinking maybe I'm going to use some targeting. That might be a way. Yeah. So how would you start thinking about this to imagine all the different components that would be useful? I'm chuckling because I just captured this behavior. And oh. It's a behavior that Robin just with offered. With the goats? No, with Robin. Oh. It's how he, okay. So he, he has a stretch bow in the morning. So he would, um, he would, right before I would pass out hay, I would see him uh, stretching out into a, uh, a what we would call a bow, and he would cross one leg over the other, and I wanted mm. it. So I just I knew when he was likely to do it, so mm. I reinforced it, and right. you know I was ready to reinforce it. I was right. looking out for it, and over time he started offering it more because I was reinforcing it, which is good evidence that actually what I was doing was reinforcing the behavior because I was seeing more of it. And um, so I, so that was a behavior I just captured. I didn't have to shape it. So let's say you wanted to have that same behavior, but your horse wasn't doing that and you needed to shape it. How would, or, you know, you don't really necessarily need to tell us the actual components, but more how do you train your brain to start identifying the components, whatever the, 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 the behaviors are. It's just like the, the process that helps you get inspiration, ideas. Well, when I first taught, uh, and it was Robin was the, horse that I first taught to lie down and I thought you know it's sort of lying down sort of the obligatory everybody you know trick trick behavior that people want mm. bowing and lying down so I should teach one of, I should teach one of my horses 
to uh, lie down. But I couldn't visualize how mm-hmm. a horse lies down because, you know, you, you don't see. There's a lot happening. There is a lot happening. And I, you know, I'd seen horses lie down for rolling, but I didn't have the picture of it in my head. It's right. like, how do they, how actually do they lie down? Right. And, and that that was an important part of teaching a horse to lie down. So I filmed uh, a horse lying down so that I could see what it is that they do so I could know what are some of the the places that you would want to reinforce in mm-hmm. the whole process. So if I were thinking about something like the stretch bow with the leg crossed over, uh, you know, I'd want to really visualize, see if, you know, is there a video somewhere of a horse doing it? Um, so, or I would mimic it in my own body, which is a great way of mm-hmm. doing it, of what do I, what do I need to do in terms of the weight shifts and what is a behavior that's going to take me in the direction of that stretch, that's, you know, that stretch or the crossover? Because I might be training a component that isn't going to take me to a crossover. Exactly, so I, yeah. You know, so it might take me somewhere else, but it might not take me, it might not be within the movement cycle of that behavior. I mean, that was something else that we talked about in science camp was, was movement cycles and, and sort of clarifying what's the difference between a movement cycle and loopy training. And the, and the movement cycle is the series of behaviors itself. And, and a movement cycle is complete when the animal is in position to repeat the movement cycle. And loopy uh-huh. training is the overall teaching strategy. So there's a, there is a distinction between the two. But in any event, right. you know, what is the movement cycle? So if I were thinking about a stretch bow, I might mimic it to the best of my biped ability. I might mimic it in my body. Well, you can get on all four. Yes, you can. Um, <laughs> it's still not quite the same, but, you know, I would, quite, but... I, would, I would mimic it to the best of my biped ability of what are the weight shifts and what is involved in getting the crossover. And then I would make clever use of targets. But overall, whatever it is, I would want to visualize what is the balance shift that gets you to that behavior. You absolutely need to do this, you know, while you're in your planning phase. That's right. That's right. Because lumping in a way is... Part of it is that the planning is not thorough. You know, you yes. lumping, you're kind of mm, counting on you being able to see it while it's happening or being able to influence it while it's happening, which yeah, or sort is of actually quite di- hard. Yeah, or just sort of diving in without realizing that it's more complex than you thought yeah. it was. I mean, we all do that. You know, and that's in a sense that's just testing the waters. You know, I I dove in uh, f- thinking that this that my animals were well prepared, would just be able to do it, and lo and behold, they didn't have a clue what I was asking them to do, and it was really hard. 
Yeah. And so, and so it's now testing I testing the waters if you do it once. Yeah. But if yeah, you that's do right. 15 minutes of it, it's not testing the waters anymore. Yeah. Or, yeah. If you keep, if, you know, if you keep on and on, then it's saying, okay, there's something wrong with this picture. Because testing the water would take, well, depending on the behavior, but would take a couple of minutes. And even that, you know, probably 30 seconds, depending on how long the behavior actually is, if it's a chain or not. But it's very quick to test the water. So you get your answer pretty rapidly. Yeah. And you start saying, oh, okay, this, I'm not working. This, this is not working. This is not prepared enough. Let me go think about what is missing. And how could I, how could I do this better? You know, how could I do it better? Yeah. And then you, there's a point where you can see that every time things are not working out, it's speak you know, that it's because you're missing components. And sometimes you may decide that you don't want to train those components for whatever reason, that because you're lazy or because you want to focus on something else or, but you know that that's all that it is. Or, or, or because without being unreasonable, you can get the job done. Yeah. So, you know, so maybe you have, um, Less finesse, but it's happening. So yeah. we're okay. You, you'll live with it. There's a third horse in the barn, and she has a really nasty leg wound. And so it has to be wrapped, and it's quite a fancy wrap because this horse has a... She has... It's long. one of those long stories. She was badly injured when she was a yearling, and she's now 17 or 18. So there, there's... There isn't proper skin on her leg and all the rest of it. So this this wound is a worry because her skin is so badly damaged. But in any event, it's healing beautifully, thank goodness. But she has to have a quite a fancy wrap over it. And she's a reasonable horse. She's very reasonable. She doesn't have the depth of training in her that that the other horses have. But she's a reasonable horse to handle. So I had her person hold her, you know, which doesn't, which, you know, that doesn't sound terrible at all. She's being held. She's getting goodies while she's being held, but she's not standing there magnificently, you know, on a mat at her station without moving while I wrap her leg, which in the beginning, the wound still hurt. So it was, you know, I really want her distracted so that we can get a good wrap over this leg. And it wasn't, there was nothing unreasonable about it. So, yes, she's not doing it with complete cooperation, but she's, somebody is holding her halter, but it's totally reasonable. Am I going to take the training time to make it more finessed? No, I'm not. You know, it's, so it's not always that we're lazy. Well, I'll it's... give you another example. You know, right now my horses are in the summer pasture, so I'm far from the arena. And so I train a lot. What I do is I just close the shelter with one wire. It's not even electric. And I do some some husbandry. I do, you know, I brush them. I do the feed. I do a little bit of, of work inside there, but it's a, sm it's a shelter, you know. It's, so it's about 10 feet deep. And so, of course, there's no electricity. And Pico, who's always the smarty that he is, you know, he he knows that there's no electricity. And so he's always in my back. Mm -hmm. 
You know, he always wants to, he wants to come in, he wants to be part of, you know, whatever. And so, of course, I could train it. You know, I could take the time and train it, but I, I've been throwing hay so that he won't, he, he'll be busy. I just use management. But every time I, I'm thinking, I'm reinforcing this behavior because, you know, he comes in, I throw a little bit of hay. So sure enough, he comes back in. And in my mind, I thought, okay, next summer when I do this, I'm going to train it. But for now, it's working out. You know, I bring the quantity of hay that I need. Yep. And, you know, I'll do three, two, three times during the session while I'm with uh, another horse. I'll throw him some hay and it's fine. It's working out, you know. But it could, it could be trained for sure. It could be yep. trained and it should be trained probably. But it's just well, I don't want to focus there right now. Management is a, you know, a, adjusting the environment is a great. It's not invasive. It's a great option. And, and I don't he thinks, want. He thinks it's a pretty good option. Uh, yes. <laughs> he and, hasn't and complained to me. I don't want people to feel that they are somehow lesser or insufficient or, you know, whatever, because they haven't taken the time to train a particular something to its, you know, utter elegance. Because sometimes... Well, I have trained because it's kind of a chain. You know, the minute yeah. he finishes the hay, he'll come and say, okay, I'm out of hay and I'll throw some more. So yeah. it's definitely something that I have trained. Yes. It's a chain that I have yes. trained. Um, you're using... In my mind, it's just management, but yeah. for him... You know, it's so you're, a you're arranging the environment in a way that makes it pleasant for him, acceptable yeah. for you. And yeah. arranging the environment is an important part of sort of solving some of these living with one another um, situations. And I get, you know, I often get these situations where people have, you know, how do I deal with multiple animals? And, and while you are training... And getting to the point where every one of your 10, you know, fill in the blank, goats, dogs, horses, whatever, will each go to his name station. Yeah. What do you do in the meantime? What do you do in the meantime while you arrange yeah. the environment? I'll, I'll share a, a, a cute goat story and then we probably should sort of begin to wind down for the day. Yeah. So the, the goats have a small paddock area that is sort of reserved for them that has a lot of good goat eating things in it. And I don't let them out on it on a regular basis. Normally we go for walks out and about and I let them browse on whatever is, whatever needs trimming, they get to trim it down. But uh, when I would like them to have a little bit more turnout and I know I'm going to be busy and I don't, you know, for whatever reason, I put them, let, I let them out in that area. And it's, you know, I open the gate and they go streaming in. And the last couple mornings I've needed to do some work in the barn and not give them formal training sessions. So I open the gate and they, mm -hmm. four of the goats have gone streaming in. And the fifth goat, Elian, has been out on, has gone straight to one of the mats that's in the barnyard <laughs> and okay. is looking at me with this. I'm not leaving this mat. <laughs> I'm not going in there. Okay. I, I'm not going into that paddock where I could eat whatever I want. I'm staying right here on this mat 
so that you will come and play with me. And train me. <laughs> yes. So I would that's say great. that's choice. That's what yeah. choice looks like. And I keep <laughs> thinking, you know, I, I really need to take a picture of this because what? Because that would be the caption. This is what choice looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And and he's top dog in this goat herd. So it's not as though this is right. a goat that's picked on who's going, I don't want to go in there with the other four because I get picked yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. He's the one that. <laughs> You know, that whatever he wants, he takes and the others all scatter. So he, he's definitely making that choice. So if ever, if ever someone was wondering if they liked clicker training, that's the That's the answer. The answer. This is yeah. what choice looks like. That's and, right. and that's when you know that, that they really are making a choice because he has, you know, he, he has available to him other things that are of high value. Staying with the rest of his herd, going out on that hillside to browse. And what would he rather do? He would rather stand on a mat and and wave his front feet in the air to get hay stretcher pellets. So, so I suppose the barn chores waited a little bit? They did. They did. <laughs> so he got played with. So, But it's all, you know, that's what today we've been talking about is, you know, that of giving them a say, letting them have a voice, that it's about giving them control of the situation. So there's the example from the zoo of these animals as part of the training protocol, set everything up so that there is a clear, yes, I want to participate. No, I don't want to participate. And going back to the component parts, that's really about choice as well in terms of if I listen well to my animal I will see that my animal is ready for me to move on and is comfortable moving on to the next the next the next layer in a training process or Mm -hmm. he's not comfortable and I need I'm missing a component and if I if I keep pushing I'll get a clear no yeah. You know, I'll get the animal instead of going to the mat. He leaves the mat because he's saying this is this is too hard. I don't like this. I don't I'm not comfortable with this. I don't want to do this. And so, you know, it's it's very much about learning to listen. And if we take that to you know, to the broader message, you know, of what what are some of the skills that we're learning? I think one of the skills that we're learning with our animals is we learn to listen. I mean, listening mm-hmm. means that you're not talking, you know, mm-hmm. you're listening and you're really trying to hear the others, what the other is saying, what the other is point of view is. And you're trying to understand why is this individual worried or concerned or not able to do particular exercise, you know, their, their opinion matters to you and that we're learning to listen. And it seems to me without getting political at all, but it, this, you know, we're, we are in an election cycle. We're in really challenging times that the coronavirus has made all the more intense and that, we really, more than ever, more than ever, we need to learn to listen to one another, even when we don't like 
what the other individual is saying. Sometimes I don't like what my horse is saying. You know, I want to go for a ride. Why are you saying you don't? (laughs) You know, sometimes we don't want to hear no. We don't like what the, our partner is saying, but what our training skills are teaching us is how to hear that without, uh, without taking it on as an emotional blow. Mm-hmm. Without fighting back, without, you know, without arguing back, but to go have a think, have a listen, and see if there's a way to build better communication. And that's really, I think, a message for the times we are living in. How do we build better communication? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a good spot to, to end on, I think. I so, think so. So yep. we, will, we will both, uh, since we are living on the Northeast, I hope you're, you are having as beautiful a day as I am having here. And we send our, our thoughts out to all of our, our good friends out on the West Coast. And I really feel for all of you. And... and Just stay safe. Stay safe. I'm not sure I want to add anything to that ending. We have so much that's going on right now. We have the aftermath of Hurricane Sally in the south. There are the fires in the west. And there's the constant concern about the virus. There's a lot for all of us to worry about. And I do hope wherever you are, you are staying safe. If you'd like to have something fun to look forward to, check out the virtual clinics that I'll be giving this fall. You'll find a complete listing in the events section of my website, theclickercenter.com. The group sizes are kept small for these get-togethers, so be sure to register early to reserve your spot. Getting together with a group of clicker trainers, it really is just a breath of fresh air. And given everything that's going on between the fires and the weather and everything else, getting together with fellow clicker trainers is a true delight. I know that I always enjoy these gatherings. So hopefully I'll see you at one of them. And in the meantime, stay safe.